Chapter 77 This is How I Know One day, I needed to take Holly to a basketball practice. I backed my car to the driveway and headed off down our street. As I got to the corner, I noticed and remembered that I was almost completely out of gas, like almost literally running on fumes. Since I was less than a block from my house, the logical thing would have been to turn around and go home and switch cars. Instead, I reasoned that I could probably make it the 20 blocks to the nearest gas station. I nervously pulled off our street and drove, careful not to press too hard on the gas pedal. I judged right, and just as I pulled into the gas station, the car sputtered and fell silent. I coasted right up to the pump. I couldn't have measured it better. As I congratulated myself for my estimating skills, I noticed that my car insurance had expired a week earlier and I had forgotten to renew it. Once again, I was at about the halfway point to the basketball practice and the prudent thing to do would have been to go home and switch vehicles. Instead, I reasoned that I had gone this long without it and would probably be fine. Again, it was fine and I managed to make it to the practice only a few minutes late. The next day, I had a meeting in the evening at the police station and I remembered on my way there that I still had no insurance on my car and it probably wouldn't be a good idea to park in the detachment parking lot with an uninsured vehicle, so I desperately searched for the closest insurance dealer. There happened to be one across the street from the police station, so I quickly pulled in there and explained my situation. The insurance agent literally had me out of there in less than five minutes. I pulled into the station parking lot, walked quickly from my car, through the front doors and into the meeting room with not a minute to spare. One year, I swore I was going to renew my driver's license on time. Because it only needs to be renewed on my birthday once every five years, it is very easy for it to slip my mind. This year, I was determined to be on time and avoid the risk of driving without a license, which had become a tradition. On my birthday, I made sure to include a trip to the licensing office in my plans and stood proudly in line as I prepared to do a thing that all grown-ups do without fanfare. When my number was called, I proudly strode to the counter to announce that I was going to renew my license on time for the first time ever. The kind lady behind the counter took my license and looked at it before handing it back to me with a patient smile on her face. She then informed me that not only was I not late this year, I was a year early. My license still had a year left before it needed to be renewed. Somewhat sheepishly, I took the license back and shuffled out of the office. The next year, I renewed it over two weeks after it had expired, as per usual. I'd had a brief and fleeting brush with adulthood and watched it float away. One year, I determined that for my birthday, I wanted to get an action camera like a GoPro because the idea of it was appealing to me. Instead of getting an actual GoPro, because we didn't have the money, I spent weeks researching different brands of cameras before settling on a Polaroid model. I ordered it online and was super excited when it arrived in the mail a week or so later. The first thing I did was fasten it to my steering wheel, because why wouldn't I? Not my dashboard, but my steering wheel, because I thought that would be more interesting to watch. The next thing I did was attach it to a broom handle, and reach way up with the camera on the end to peek into a bird's nest that was attached to the side of our house. I could hear that there were young birds in there, and I was very curious to see what they looked like. Instead, what happened was that one of the young birds, frightened by the intrusion, came bursting out of the birdhouse and attempted to fly to safety. Instead, it was intercepted by a hovering crow and killed. I did get some good footage of the inside of the nest, but I felt a bit guilty for indirectly murdering the bird. That was the last time I used the camera. Not out of guilt, but because I quickly lost the waterproof cover, the charger, and many of the attachments that were necessary to connect it to things like handlebars. The other reason was that I actually don't do a lot of things that could be described as action anymore. My days of jumping bikes into the trees were long over. However, hyper-focusing on something at the exclusion of everything else, only to quickly forget about it once I had acquired it, that is something that may never be finished. I have a private counseling practice and a contract with the city and township of Langley, which means I have two different work calendars. I also have five children who are all involved in extracurricular activities and a large extended family, almost all of whom live within 45 minutes of my home. This makes it a constant challenge to know where I'm supposed to be and what I'm supposed to be doing. I check both work calendars no less than 10 times every day and retain almost nothing from doing so, hence the repeated checking. One day, while checking ahead on my private practice calendar, I noticed that I'd booked an evening off, but I had no idea why I'd done it. This often causes panic for me because I do so many speaking engagements and workshops that when I see a blank space like this, my greatest fear is that somewhere there's an audience waiting for me to show up. I asked Tina if she knew why it was empty, and she didn't know. I racked my brain to try and remember where I was supposed to be, 
and what I was supposed to be doing. Finally, after a few days of mounting pressure, I resorted to a public appeal on Facebook, asking if anyone knew why I might have booked the evening off. I was saved not once but twice by two different people's replies. The first reminded me that I had bought a ticket to attend a lecture given by Gabor Matei that night in the nearby community of Mission. I had completely forgotten about it, other than a vague sense that it was coming up at some point in the future. Then another friend messaged me saying that while she didn't know why I had booked that evening off, she did know that the next week I was scheduled to speak at an event called Ignite Abbotsford. That one I hadn't blocked off on my calendar, and if she hadn't messaged me, I would have totally forgotten to show up. The title of my short speech that night was 20 ADHD stories in 5 minutes, and the content featured a range of situations just like this. I have missed mortgage payments more than once, simply because I forgot to transfer money into the right account. I pay late fees, penalties, and interest on my income taxes every year, because no matter how much I want to, I just can't seem to file them on time. Over the years, I've had to replace several socket wrench scents and screwdrivers and hammers because the old ones ceased to exist, disappearing into another dimension, only to reappear after I've purchased and used the new ones. I've had so many items of clothing disappear that I'm starting to wonder if maybe someone has been slowly enacting the world's greatest prank for the last 30 years. I've punched holes through doors and walls and broken porcelain countertops out of frustration. I've offended dozens of people with my mistimed comments. I've prepared countless talks, lessons, lectures, and slideshows in the wee hours of the morning on the day before I was supposed to present them. I've added countless slides to those presentations as the audience filed in to take their seats. I've started so many books that I've never finished, many of them lent out to others because I was so excited about what I was reading that I just needed to share it with someone else. I'm really good at imitating people's mannerisms and accents because I spend so much time observing people. My mood can go from happy and excited to sad and angry in less time than it takes me to forget what you just asked me to do. But it can also go in the opposite direction just as fast. I've lost and gained the same 40 pounds four separate times, each time believing that this was the time that things had really changed, only to watch helplessly as I outgrew all of my clothes again. The pantry door in our old house didn't have a doorknob for 11 years, and I only put one on two months before we moved to a new house. I've double-booked clients on multiple occasions, and one time I even triple-booked, but one of them no-showed, which saved me even further embarrassment. I can see how the little details may affect the big picture, which sometimes leads to overthinking, but then my impulsivity kicks in, and I take the risk anyway, believing that the consequences will be an adventure. I need to be outside in nature, where I feel most at peace, but I often struggle with the motivation needed to actually get there. I can completely dominate conversations, even while I'm self-consciously criticizing myself for doing so. I stay up way too late binge-watching TV shows or creating music, but can still get out of bed early the next day and put in 12 hours of work. I interrupt people. I have a thousand good ideas, most of which will never turn into reality. I'm prone to all kinds of addictive behavior. I fidget so much that it's hard for people to sit next to me. I spend most of my time driving with my car almost out of gas. I hyperfocus and learn the why behind as many things as I can, but this is often at the expense of actually doing the things I'm supposed to. I once wrote a three-part blog post about procrastination, and after writing the first two parts in two days, I didn't write the third part until another month had passed, and I knew that's how it would go as soon as I started the first part. I once made a series of videos on my YouTube channel describing the diagnostic criteria for ADHD in detail and posted all but the last symptom, and I still don't even know why, especially since it's already recorded. I lost my train of thought in the middle of speaking to a group of school teachers and staff about helping kids with ADHD. The irony was so great that the people thought it was intentional and part of my presentation. My brain can read a children's book out loud, substituting funny voices and accents while simultaneously figuring out how to fix the leak under the sink. I often say, what? when people say things to me because I don't think I was listening, but then when they start to say it again, I realize that I did hear them, but I don't know if I should interrupt them and tell them I heard, or if I should just let them say it again. Either way, they'll be annoyed. I spend more time trying to think of an efficient way to do things than it would take to just do it the inefficient way. When I read, I often repeat the same line or paragraph without absorbing anything because I'm thinking about something else, usually triggered by what I'm supposed to be reading. I often meet people, and within seconds of them introducing themselves, I've already forgotten their names, mostly because I wasn't really listening when they told me. Rewatching the same movie almost feels physically painful to me because of the boredom. 
So many times I sit at the computer, fingers hovering above the keyboard, poised for action, a Google search page glaring at me impatiently as I try to answer the question, what was I going to look up? When people hear this small sampling, they often say, well, I do that too, or everybody does that. My practiced, patient response is to point out that, of course, everyone has moments of forgetfulness, disorganization, impulsivity, and lack of motivation. Everyone has experienced the symptoms of ADHD at one time or another. However, when you experience most of the symptoms most of the time, that is something qualitatively different. I am qualitatively different. Chapter 78. People who just don't get it, and people who do. In the years that have passed since that eventful time in 2009, so many more ripples have spread across my life their source being the realization of an alternate explanation. I have given numerous workshops on the subject, trying always to answer the why questions. Why does he procrastinate? Why doesn't she do what I ask her to? Why does he forget so easily? Why do I have a hard time getting motivated to do anything? Why can't I just pick a career and stick with it? Why does she get so angry? Why is he so sensitive? Why can't I stop eating these subpar rice crackers from Costco, even though they have hardly any flavor and may in fact be partly made from plastic, and leave a coating on my tongue that makes me wish I had more self-control, but not wish it hard enough to actually stop eating them? Okay, I added that last one in. There must be the perfect mix of salt and sugar in these things, and I am eating them robotically. Only if the robot was programmed to self-destruct. Okay, I put them away. The reason I spend so much time on the why is because if we don't have the real explanation, we're going to come up with or accept from others explanations that are at best inaccurate and at worst harmful. I try to teach people about dopamine and the prefrontal cortex and the reticular activating system and mirror neurons and the neurobiology of working memory because unless we can actually see the things that are different, it is very hard to accept the behavioral limitations that come with this brain we have. Even when it can be seen, it can still be difficult to accept. When I was working at the treatment center, I came into the morning clinical meeting one time, only to be told that one of my clients had verbally assaulted the cook the night before, cursing at her and acting rudely. I was told that I would need to address this behavior with him and make sure that he understood that it was not acceptable. I told them I would talk to him, but that it was important for everyone to understand that when this client was a young boy, he had wiped out on his bike and had his handlebars pierce the front of his skull so deeply into his brain that the firefighters just sawed the handlebars off and took him to the hospital with them hanging out of his forehead. After they were removed by the surgeons, what was left behind was essentially a large hole, specifically in the area of the brain responsible for self-awareness and self-control. As such, it was to be expected that this kind of thing might happen again. After this explanation, I was ready to move on to the next item when the janitor piped up, Yeah, but still, he can't be doing that and he needs to know that. I couldn't quite believe what I'd heard, so I reiterated that the part of his brain responsible for self-control no longer existed and that this was going to be an ongoing issue. Well, yeah, but still. Realizing the futility of this conversation, I let it go. But it was the accumulation of moments like these that eventually led to the decision to leave the treatment center behind. Management was happy to see me go, as I did not fit into the mold of employee who takes it and is quiet about it. But I felt bad leaving the clients behind, knowing that they were now missing a staunch advocate for their rights, not only as clients, but also as humans. About six months before I left the center to pursue my private counseling practice full-time, I had completed my master's degree in psychology with a counseling specialization. It had been a long and difficult journey to get there, with about half of the coursework being completed before I was diagnosed and treated for that pesky ADHD. Up until that point, and to be honest, even after that point to some degree, my style was very similar to that of university. In fact, graduate school was the scene of one of my greatest triumphs. If procrastinating were an Olympic event, I would have a collection of gold medals that would make Michael Phelps jealous. Actually, now that I mention that, it's interesting that two of the most dominant Olympians ever were quite open about their own ADHD, meaning Phelps and Simone Biles, the tiny gymnast from the Rio Games. I wonder how they got past the barriers that ADHD presents to become so disciplined and focused on a goal that was so far away. Anyway, I procrastinate with the best of them, and one time in grad school, I put off the writing of a final paper until the last three days of the semester, even though that paper was worth the majority of the grade in my biology of behavior class. 
I had been gathering research sources and reviewing them and essentially writing the paper in my mind, but had yet to type even a single word of the actual document. When I reached that sweet spot where the panic kicks in but has not yet overwhelmed completely, I sat down at the computer and began typing, reading, reviewing, researching, and hyper-focusing like my life depended on it. I called in sick the next two days to work on the project and got only four hours sleep between the two nights, with every other waking moment occupied by the completion of the paper. In the end, I finished and submitted it online with only 20 minutes to spare before the deadline, without even having time to proofread it. I was somewhat surprised, but not completely, when I got my course grade back a week later, 97%. I immediately called my dad to tell him about it, especially since, in his generosity, he was funding my graduate education. I wanted to let him know that his investment was a good one, and of course, I wanted him to be proud of me. It's funny, even to this day, that's what makes me tear up more than anything, seeing or hearing about fathers telling their sons that they're proud of them. I didn't hear it very much growing up, and that was probably partly because I made a lot of mistakes, but it was also because my dad handed out praise like Scrooge. He wasn't critical, but it took quite a bit to ripple the water, if you know what I mean. He answered, and I told him the good news, and he responded by saying, Okay, well, uh, we're at Carrie's house right now, just pulled in the driveway, so uh, we'll talk to you later. That was basically it. It felt like a punch in the stomach of my attachment, and I sat down and wrote the following email. Hello, Mother. I have to say, I was a bit disappointed by your and Dad's reaction to my phone call last night. I guess it was just a repeat of the usual pattern. I come to you with something that I think is a wonderful achievement, and inwardly wishing that I can surprise you with the accomplishment. Your reaction was underwhelming, to say the least. I realize that this may seem like a baby reaction, stomping my feet and demanding that you praise me, but that's how I feel, emotionally. I worked my tail off and almost got 100% in a challenging course in graduate school, and the reaction was, well, good for you, from you, and Dad's was, well, how did you get that mark? as if there had to be some logical explanation for my success other than my ability. This is the kind of authentic directness you have to deal with when you have a therapist for a son, but I left the conversation feeling like it wasn't that big of a deal, and it is a big deal. Also, when I was talking to you about the troubles at work, I felt like I received no support, only, well, don't make anyone mad. I felt a bit abandoned, to be honest, like I was experiencing some emotional difficulty about my work situation, and all I got from my home base was, well, don't do something dumb. Then you rushed me off the phone because you were in front of Carrie's house. I did not leave the conversation feeling very valuable. Maybe I'm overreacting, but emotions do not need to be justified, only described. I know you guys love me, and I think you're proud of me, but there is a hole in me that doesn't seem fillable. Anyway, I just thought I would let you know my feelings instead of holding it inside and holding it against you. Sorry for burdening you with all of this, but it's never too late to learn to do things differently. Love, Ted. In this email, you can see the pattern that has repeated itself so many times in my life, but this time was different. I was empowered by my career and educational success up to this point, but mostly by the knowledge of my ADHD. This event occurred just before my official diagnosis. And the accompanying realization that I was worth something that I was capable and valuable and deserving and that I wasn't going to just take it anymore. In no way do I want to paint my parents as bad people or bad parents. They too, as humans do, get stuck in patterns of behavior and feeling, products of their own experiences and of their own parents. All of that aside, I needed to let them know how I was affected by their responses, so I wrote the email. When working with couples, I often advise them to write letters or emails to each other to express their feelings about hard subjects because it allows the writer to take the time to reflect and process instead of just reacting to a lot of the nonverbal communication that triggers. I always say, nobody can interrupt your email. Anyway, I figured an email was the best way to get my point across, and my mom, in her greatness, responded with the following. Ted, you were quite right. I thought about it afterward, and I thought... We kind of gave Ted the brush off when he called us with his good news, just because we were about to go into Carrie's. And I asked myself why we did that. I think it would have been different if we'd been at home when you called. All I can think of is that we were otherwise mentally engaged. We were just about to step out of the car to go into Carrie's, expectation already firmly engaged, when you called. That must have been why we appeared so underwhelmed. 
but we actually weren't as underwhelmed as you thought. We were delighted. Unfortunately, it just didn't come across. The funny thing is, Ted, we were happy for you and proud of you, but not surprised. I guess we expect that kind of thing from you because we know you are a really smart guy and that you are working really hard on your courses. We probably don't realize the magnitude of the work involved either and what a huge accomplishment it is to get marks like that in grad school. Poor excuses, though, and I'm truly sorry if we ruined your moment, as we clearly did. I'm sorry, too, if you think you have to impress us. You're good enough just by being our son. But I know kids like to have their parents' approval, especially with someone like Dad, who is not emotionally demonstrative. So I apologize for our reaction, and in the future, because your parents are obviously denser than they appear, or maybe not, you might want to preface your next big announcement with, Okay, I want you to listen, because this is really important. If that doesn't get our attention, we are truly hopeless. I hope I have helped you feel a bit less dejected. This is obviously a long-standing concern of yours, and not likely to go away with one email. You know that we love you a huge amount, and believe it or not, we glory in all your successes, and feel your failures too. If I came across disinterested about the work, time off problem, I really wasn't communicating in that area either, because I was very concerned about that. I guess I've been concerned that all your schoolwork would take away from your job, and they would get mad at you. With so many people getting laid off these days, I worry about my kids' jobs, and know how lucky you all are to have them. That's about all the excuses I can make for us. The very least we can do is go out to dinner to celebrate your success. Love, Mommy. Is she a great mom or what? And she was right about my employer, too. They found out that I'd called in sick to do my homework, and they were not happy about it, docking my pay for those two days. But I didn't really care. It was worth it. Chapter 79 Relax. You're among weirdos. Not long after my diagnosis, I attended a dinner event where a professor of psychiatry from the University of British Columbia was going to be speaking about ADHD. This was an event put on for doctors, probably sponsored by a pharmaceutical company in some way, and the psychiatrist who attended the treatment center bi-weekly to work with mainly my clients had given me the heads up, passing his invitation on to me because he was unable to attend. I felt a bit out of place as a lowly counselor, and my discomfort was only added upon when I saw one of my least favorite doctors in town come strutting through the door. The event was held at a restaurant, and he immediately ordered some wine, knowing that the dinner was being paid for by the organizers. He then loudly wondered what the event was all about, and someone told him it was about diagnosing and treating ADHD. He then, much to my astonishment, asked, What's that? The incredibly patient person who was trapped in this nightmare then proceeded to give a brief synopsis of the main symptoms, to which Dr. Hyde responded, Hell, isn't everyone like that? While I wasn't shocked that he was an obnoxious freeloader and a condescending narcissist, I was shocked that someone could finish medical school and have a booming family practice without even knowing what ADHD was. I'm sad to say that since that day the shock has worn off, as I have heard so many frustrating stories from my clients of seeking help from doctors only to be told, you don't look that hyper to me, and that is the extent of the assessment. One client, for whom ADHD seemed to fill in a lot of gaps, like it had for me, was excited to see his family doctor and explore treatment options, only to be told he didn't have ADHD and instead receive a prescription for antidepressants. I asked him if the doctor had asked any questions about his childhood or school experiences, all of which fit the bill quite seamlessly. He said that he hadn't. I then asked if the doctor had in fact asked any questions related to the ADHD symptom checklist that my client had taken to the appointment. He said he hadn't. I then strongly suggested to my client that he go back to the doctor and insist that he either properly assess the condition or refer him to someone who would. My client listened and came away from the appointment with medication that began to help him immediately. While attending this little information session where I felt out of my league, I was pleased to learn about a doctor who lived in the next city over who specialized in adult ADHD. I was also pleased to learn about an organization called CADRA, or the Canadian ADHD Resource Alliance. I suppose it used to be called the ADD Resource Alliance, since that's what ADHD used to be called, but when the disorder changed names, the organization didn't because CADRA is such an easy acronym. But I tell you, inconsistencies like that drive part of my brain crazy. It's one of those places where my brain needs symmetry. 
I find that I have a lot of those little things floating around in my life that create aversive emotions for no discernible reason. You'll notice that I didn't say for no reason at all, because of course there's a reason. We might just be unable to explain the reason. For example, you may or may not have heard of something called synesthesia, where the different senses are interconnected in a way that may cause a person to smell sounds, hear colors, taste textures, or have emotional experiences evoked by inanimate objects. These interactions between the senses are not based on past experiences or conditioning or anything like that. We seem to come into the world this way. In fact, some researchers believe that we are all born with this sensory interconnectivity, but because it serves no survival purpose, the brain prunes these connections over time, dispersing the valuable energy resources in building and maintaining other, more vital connections and networks. But then there's this group of us that believe that Wednesday is yellow or the color red makes us sad. The other thing about these synesthetic connections is that they're highly unique and personalized. For me, the number eight feels very arrogant. And the number four feels very low-key cool, like the kid who has self-confidence and doesn't need to brag, but everyone still knows he's the dude. For me, when I picture the year in my mind, it is shaped like a lopsided horseshoe, with July and August prominently featured on the top, and the last four months of the year squished into a small space on the right. I've had clients tell me that they felt sad choosing one article of clothing over another because it seemed unfair to the other clothes. I've had people tell me that they felt bad for their old microwave when it was left out in the rain. Why am I talking about this right now? I sometimes describe these kinds of neuroanatomical oddities to my clients as allergies. Imagine if the socks that feel scratchy actually have a synesthetic association that makes them not only feel scratchy, but scary. What if making eye contact smelled like rotten eggs? Wouldn't it make it more understandable why the kid is so adamant about not wearing those socks or avoiding eye contact? What if we thought of the resistant, defiant, or overreacting kid as having an allergic reaction to tasks and sensations? Instead of their skin breaking out in welts or their throat swelling up, their central nervous system breaks out in anger or fear. Granted, this is just my own theory based on logic and neurophysiology, but it's the kind of thing that only someone who is on the inside, who lives with weirdness on a daily basis, might be able to understand and articulate to someone else. Whenever I found myself talking with a doctor who didn't need to be convinced that ADHD was a real thing, I felt like I was with my people. The presenter of the information session was a member of CADRA, which is an organization dedicated to educating doctors, psychologists, counselors, social workers, and everyone else about the assessment and treatment of ADHD. I found out that not only was the annual CADRA conference coming up soon, but it would actually be held in Vancouver that year. I quickly applied for membership, was accepted, and registered for the conference. I was so excited to be surrounded by like-minded people and medical helping professionals who were past the stage where they needed convincing and had moved on to the how-can-we-help phase. I learned about all different aspects and wrinkles having to do with ADHD symptoms, causes, treatments, and mindset paradigm shifts that are necessary in our world. While it was exciting to be learning so much about something so important to me, it was the acceptance and absence of skepticism that probably impacted me the most at the conference. It reminded me of a documentary I'd watched one time called Teenage Tourette's Camp, where these British kids with Tourette's got on a plane and flew to the U.S. to attend a week-long camp with other kids in the same situation. It was a week of twitches, tics, cursing and yelling, and the greatest part of the show was that the Tourette's quickly faded into the background of the story as it became more about one girl ditching the group to try to fit in with the cool kids at the camp. I mean, they were teenagers after all. Instead of the shame and anxiety that they all lived with on a daily basis due to their very noticeable differences. At the CADRA conference, I kind of felt like those kids, minus the cursing and shouting, though I do have some significant tics, as if I was allowed to walk around with my mask off. It was quite exhilarating to be freed from the prison of self-doubt for a temporary reprieve. One of the other things that stood out to me from the conference was the lack of understanding that many professionals seem to have about the impact of living with ADHD. They were all quite well versed in the symptoms of ADHD, but not in what I call the symptoms because of. I'm not talking about distractibility, impulsivity, fidgetiness, boredom, and questionable decision-making skills. I'm referring to the impact of living like that in a world that can't accept it isn't built for it, and doesn't want to understand it. I'm talking about accumulating failures, near misses, and shame-filled moments. 
I'm talking about evaporating self-esteem, self-confidence, self-worth, and self-identity. I'm talking about the hopelessness that comes from believing you are helpless. I'm talking about the self-soothing that comes in the form of a multitude of addictive vices, the opportunities missed, the second chances squandered, the confirmation of your greatest fears, and the dashing of your greatest hopes. These are what I and many others with ADHD experience on a regular basis, and they are what I experience because of ADHD. As the doctors and other professionals joked about distracted patients, those who showed up late, missed appointments, or forgot to take their medication, I chuckled along with them. But I began, for the first time in earnest, to really be aware of the pain those chuckles were covering up. I began to see ADHD as more than a collection of symptoms and behaviors explained through neurochemistry and neurophysiology. I began to see it as a collection of definitions about myself and the world around me, things that I had always accepted as facts but may simply be masses-produced fictions. I began to see that the pain I felt was not from the ADHD itself and all of the complications it brought to my life. I began to see that the pain came from the gap between how I was and how the world expected me to be. And as the process of revelation unfolded, I began to see that I needed to make some changes, not just in the way I saw the world, but in the way the world sees us. Chapter 80. You Zig, I Zag. Interestingly, when I googled the question, are some people not built to read? Google asked me if I meant to ask if some people are not built to run. So unacceptable is this idea that the only article that came up on the subject was arguing that the notion is a silly one and should be dismissed. The author argues that while there are some positive traits that seem to come along with dyslexia, there are, quote, foundational academic skills, unquote, that are missing, and this should therefore continue to be classified as a disability. It is strange to me what appears so obvious is apparently quite obfuscated. How's that for a word? It means to make something unclear. All we need to do to see the crack in this argument is to change the arena of the missing skill. Consider the example of LeBron James on skates. In the case of this fish out of water, this would be a true statement. Although James is able to literally jump over defenders and shoot the ball in the hoop from 40 feet away, there are some foundational hockey skills that are missing. Therefore, it is accurate to conclude that James has a hockey disability. Anyone who made that argument, or hot take as it is known in the annoying world of sports talk radio, would be laughed off the air. If I'm skilled at building car engines, but not at reading, I have a reading disability. But if the reverse was true, you wouldn't say I had a mechanical disability. What is the difference between these two? It is simple, and it finds its roots in the history of education. I don't have time for a detailed review, but oh man, I want to dig into it so bad. I will resist and give you the short version. First, let me say I am not anti-literacy. That would be pretty dumb considering I'm hoping that you're reading this. I'm using literacy as an example of how an idea can spread until it becomes so ubiquitous that it appears to be self-evident simply because we have all stated it to be true for so long. While it can be argued that literacy allows for education to be possible, it is also true that this is because education is built around literacy. An analogous argument would be that basketballs are round because the hoop is round. Are we to understand that before the advent of the written and read word, humans simply wandered around bumping into things and wondering what to do with themselves? Of course they didn't. For the societies that existed at the beginning of literacy, reading and writing were a luxury. Survival and progeny were the main focus of existence. As reading and writing developed, they became not only a way to store and convey information, but also a way to distinguish those who had to work to survive from those who had the luxury to sit around and read about it. In other words, literacy became a status symbol. As such, the rise of literacy is inextricably linked to the desire of the majority of humanity to rise above their station in life, to be seen as noble and special. Luckily, the vast majority of humanity possesses the required brain anatomy to be able to read and write, so bringing the children in from the family farm and plunking them in a desk with a slate was not traumatic. The reality is that for many of them, this was probably a welcome change. I know I'd rather sit and read than plow the field or bale the hay. But what about that kid who loves baling hay and plowing the field? 
the kid whose brain is built to understand the subtleties of the seasons and the soil, the kid who was born to farm. We didn't invite him out of the field. We mandated that he come. We didn't rescue him from the field. We tore him from the field. Not only that, but after we did, we told him there was something wrong with him because he couldn't learn to read and write. Never mind that the teacher probably couldn't grow a carrot to save his life. The kid is the one who is seen as broken. For years, there has been a debate in the field of ADHD research and treatment regarding the question, is ADHD a gift or a curse? It's weird that after literally thousands of years of scientific inquiry, humans are still stuck asking binary questions, locked into false black and white arguments in which neither polarized side can ever fully capture the truth. This is because the answer to that question is highly situationally dependent. I once spoke to a group of teachers about working with students with self-regulation struggles and gave them a hypothetical situation to consider. Imagine you're in university and your entire grade in the course is dependent on two assignments. The first assignment is to be reading at least three to four books at the same time. The second assignment is to not finish any of them. When I posed this to the group, one teacher, sitting at the back of the room with a notepad full of notes, jokingly began to hyperventilate, saying, I think if the syllabus said that, I would have a panic attack. I pointed out that those same feelings often occur in people like me when the assignment is to just read one boring book all the way to the end. It feels like a wall that is too high to climb over. In high school, I didn't even try. In university, I learned to get lots of information from the chapter summaries, glossary of terms, and chapter subheadings. The point of this thought experiment is twofold. First, it gives some insight into what we are really asking of some of these ADHD brains when we want them to do seemingly simple tasks such as working on a project, reading a boring novel, or keeping their binder or desk organized. Second, it points out that the expectation that we are foisting upon them is in fact somewhat arbitrary. It is agreed upon by the masses that this is the correct way of doing things when in fact it is only the consensus way of doing things. The reality is that the consensus way works for most people. That's why it's the consensus way. If we look at a bell curve of the distribution of characteristics in a given population, we know that the biggest portion, the middle part, accounts for only 68% of the data. The other two ends combined amount to 32% of the data. Of course, I'm no math genius, but it seems to me that the consensus way excludes, in whole or in part, almost one-third of the participants. When you then take someone from either side of that curve and expect them to function in the same way as the middle 68%, problems arise. Can we not accept that at times ADHD is super convenient and at other times it is definitely not? Russell Barkley, professor of psychiatry at a few different universities in the United States and leading researcher in the field of ADHD, seems to have a very bizarre sense of mercy when it comes to this question. At the beginning of almost all of his lectures that I have watched, he makes sure to dispel, in the most condescending way possible, the notion that ADHD is a positive thing. He says that if someone with ADHD has succeeded, it is despite their ADHD and not because of it. He says the notion of a hunter-gatherer brain is a fantasy, and the reality is that ADHD is a debilitating disorder that must be taken seriously because the data indicate that it can literally be deadly. Not only does he lead off with his dismissal of our hard-fought-for silver lining, he says that to do so is the merciful thing to do, that for people with ADHD to believe otherwise is to be delusional and to set themselves up for failure. Really? That's merciful? Is he the kind of dad who says to his kid, Don't try out for the team. You're too short and fat and probably won't make it. Also, I tell you this because I love you. The thing is... The data he is referring to does, in fact, exist. We do drive more carelessly, fall into addiction easier, make impulsive financial and relationship decisions, and accidentally injure ourselves far more than the average person. How could something that is behind these statistics ever be considered a blessing? It's a question that's actually not that hard to answer. The D on the end of ADHD stands for disorder. But that's not what ADHD is. It's what ADHD can cause. There are symptoms and signs and differences in processing and wiring and chemistry, but only when those differences cause significant impairment in functioning, 
in important areas of life is it referred to as a disorder. The issue is that those areas are not omnipresent, but situational. For example, being more social than average might work very well for someone who has the responsibility to greet customers entering a store. Having an insatiably curious mind might produce endless research ideas and insights into how things work and can be improved upon. Being extremely sensitive is very useful when empathy is needed to connect to another person or animal. Being forgetful is useful when the thing to forget is unpleasant, such as another failure or mistake. Being easily distracted is only an issue in distracting environments. Working memory problems are only an issue when the individual is presented with a list of things to accomplish while in the midst of doing something else. Saying what is on your mind without a filter is only problematic when the situation calls for conformity and believe it or not, the norms to which we are expected to conform are arbitrary and entirely dependent on the population in which we exist. In other words, in a different environmental and social context, what appear to be impairments and deficits become assets and advantages. I often tell kids with ADHD that back when they were building big ships and sailing off into the horizon with no real idea where they were going or what they would find, we would have been the first in line for the adventure. And once we had come back victorious, full of tales of adventure, we would have been celebrated and venerated. Unfortunately, somebody already did most of that. So we just have to go to our social studies classes and listen to the teachers talk about it and then read boring textbooks about it and then write essays about it when we really just want to get on the ships and see what is out there. The different place and time is what has created the disorder, not the traits and tendencies. In many ways, Russell Barkley is right. ADHD is a lifelong issue and must be taken seriously. If left unattended, ADHD can contribute to many unpleasant complications across the lifespan. Having said that, the case can be made that even the symptoms because of ADHD are situationally driven. Shame is only present if we are shamed. Depression is only present if we are led to believe that we are fundamentally inadequate and that the world is not built for or accepting of us the way we are. Anxiety is only present if we are not adequately supported in our shortcomings and forgiven for our mistakes. Addiction is only present when the pain of isolation and detachment drives us to find a way to block the pain and escape the misery of hopelessness, rejection, and futility that is experienced in a world that is not built for us. To quote Gabor Mate in the final chapter of Scattered Minds, Although the soul-destroying fear of being different is shared by many in North American culture, conformism is less a painful struggle for those who really do fall within social norms. Those who do not consciously experience themselves as different may also shrink from any temptation to be themselves, but they are not compelled to live every day aware of the mask they are wearing, tense for fear it will slip. The irony is that the energy ADD adults expend on their attempts at sameness is wasted, as is the anxiety parents generate over their child's differentness. The world is much more ready to accept someone who is different and comfortable with it than someone desperately seeking to conform by denying himself. It's the self-rejection others react against, much more than the differentness. So the solution for the adult is not to fit in, but to accept his inability to conform. Chapter 81 The Greatest Work One day, my son Luke, who was probably seven or eight years old at the time, was struggling with some homework which is a ridiculous sentence if you think about it. Why would he have homework in grade two? Anyway, Luke, like me and all of his sisters, and probably even Tina and all of my brothers and dad and several cousins and my uncle and maybe my aunts and probably my grandma, has ADHD. As such, his long-term recall of movie quotes, comics and books he has read, and conversations with friends is incredible. But he struggles to remember what I just asked him to get from the fridge. After being reminded for the third time, he will finally get his socks from the laundry room, but instead of putting them on, he will carry them around with him as he goes from distraction to distraction until he finally loses track of them. In other words, he's just like me. Anyway, this particular day, his homework involved memorizing something, and he was really struggling with it. Finally, he put his head in his hands and dejectedly summed up the ADHD experience of so many in such a simple but elegant way when he sighed, It makes me ashamed that I can't remember things. When I heard him say that, my heart hurt. I knew how he felt, 
the feeling of inadequacy and stupidity, the feeling that there was something wrong with him, that he wasn't as good or smart as the other kids, and that we must be disappointed in him. I wanted so badly to shield him from those feelings and that self-perception. However, rather than rush in and encourage him, telling him that he shouldn't be ashamed or that he was smart and to just keep trying, I told him about an experience that had left me feeling the same way, not just as a kid, but recently. I told him how I felt and what I thought. I knew it was important that he not only know about my historical struggle with the same thing, but my current struggle. He looks up to me and has said on more than one occasion that I am his hero, no pressure. So he needed to know that his hero was quite the forgetful Jones as well. He needed to know that it was okay to be forgetful instead of denying that he was. Then we started to talk about all the things he's good at remembering, and I pointed out that one of the reasons he is bad at remembering some things is probably because he's so good at remembering other things, and that most people aren't good at both kinds of remembering. I recall from that conversation the feeling of pride that washed over his face as we talked about his strengths, and the feeling of relief that allowed his shoulders to slump, not in shame, but in relaxation, as he realized for a moment he was okay. My children are my lab. They are spread out in age, but close enough to be friends. In them, I have been able to observe the brain and emotional development of ADHD across the span of over 21 years now. Somebody once said that once you've met one kid with ADHD, you've met one kid with ADHD, and my family has such a clear demonstration of that idea. Manda is an overachieving perfectionist who tries hard to be organized but struggles with time management, takes a long time to do tasks, struggles to find things to occupy her very active mind, gets bored easily, and can find it hard to be still and quiet unless she's in a very uncomfortable social situation, like a new class. She's a straight-A student and has been through her entire education. She shows incredible dedication to pursuits that she's interested in, but she is easily distracted and quick to feel hopeless. She experiences synesthesia in weird ways, like a physical aversion to small holes like those found in a sponge or Swiss cheese. Becca is an underachieving procrastinator, a minimalist when it comes to effort. She has a hard time retaining information or even maintaining eye contact during a conversation without becoming distracted by either internal or external stimuli. She is a very talented singer and actor who doesn't believe that she is talented at either. She taught herself to play the guitar over a summer, and she is hilarious, but she is also prone to really big emotions, both pleasant and unpleasant. She has dealt with tics when she was younger, along with severe separation anxiety. She struggles with motivation and lack of interest in things and spends long periods of time bored out of her mind. But she is extremely sensitive to the needs and emotions of others and will go out of her way to help someone who is suffering. Jill told me recently that her life is like a sneeze that never happens. A bunch of pent-up energy looking for release. Lots of good ideas that don't turn into reality. Something to which I can relate. She also has sensory hypersensitivity can get easily overwhelmed in crowded, noisy environments, but can also be the loudest part of that environment. She, more than any of my kids, is the most likely to say the inappropriate thing, to ignore propriety and the expectation of a social filter. She is brilliant and underachieves, then gets hyper-focused on a goal and obsesses until she accomplishes it. At the age of 14, she had already written two novels, generated completely from her own imagination. Holly is a sweet girl who has no end of friends, but struggles to pay attention for even a minute at a time. Her lack of working memory is the stuff of legend, and she overcompensates for her inner scatteredness with outer OCD and cleaning, tidying, and sorting. She is also probably the biggest litter bug in the family, leaving a trail of dishes, clothes, and granola bar wrappers in her wake as she tours the house. She gets bored incredibly fast and has a hard time entertaining herself. She has been known to say with no self-aware hint of irony, I love Netflix speaking of it as a friend who really understands her needs. She is hilarious and has many hidden talents, but also struggles with anxiety to the degree that she could barely attend the first half of her first year of middle school, a challenge she overcame and then used to help her friends who struggled with the same problem. Luke, as I mentioned, has an incredible memory, unless you ask him to go and brush his teeth, clean something up, help carry something in from the car, or get his shoes on. It's not out of stubbornness or defiance. He simply gets lost on the way, absorbed in an imaginary pursuit. Like the time I asked him to carry my walking stick in from the truck on the day we moved into our new house. A few minutes later, he hadn't returned and I peeked into the living room to see him practicing his ninja skills with the stick. 
He worries about fairness and rules and would play video games until his thumbs fell off if we didn't exert some control and boundaries. He has so many incredible talents that we keep discovering, as well as tendencies to be easily wounded, to hyper-focus on people making annoying sounds, and to beatbox in church. Tina is the glue that holds us all in place, but only barely. She was often described as a space cadet or an airhead growing up, leaving her feeling chronically dumb. She is loved by everyone who meets her, but struggles to see in herself even a shred of the person we can all recognize. She is talented in many areas, but sees mainly her shortcomings and weaknesses. She is very sensitive, creative, and has the most amazing work ethic of anyone I have ever known. She will also hyper-focus on a project, whether it is preparing a Sunday school lesson, where her public speaking phobia is tested on a regular basis, or finishing a jigsaw puzzle, and I often have to physically stop her from doing chores around the house, insisting that the house won't get any messier overnight. She has the most incredible talent for knowing where stuff is that I've lost. She can remember the location of a small slip of paper that has been buried underneath a pile of clothes in a closet. She is as stubborn as I am, which makes for some interesting discussions, but she loves me more than I could ever ask for, something that is of ultimate value when facing my demons and ongoing struggles. Together, we are an interesting, heterogeneous bunch, and I have tried as hard as I can to daily reinforce the beauty of our uniqueness. I don't sugarcoat things and readily live by the motto that I proclaim to my children and my clients. It's okay to suck at stuff and not know stuff. I know that motto doesn't exactly roll off the tongue, but I also know that it's the truest, most honest way I can share that message. When we moved into our first house, we needed to do some major renovations, a job for which I had no skill whatsoever, other than a willingness to be curious and learn. I had no experience with a hammer other than smashing my Hot Wheels, and keeping track of my tools was like tracking down fugitives on the FBI's most wanted list, only with less success. If I ever needed to go to Home Depot to buy tools, equipment, or building supplies, I would do hours of research on YouTube and various DIY websites so that I could walk into the store and talk as if I knew what I was talking about. I desperately wanted to avoid being seen as I was, an amateur who was in over his head. One day it dawned on me, I was an amateur who was in over his head. Why should I pretend otherwise? I began to go to Home Depot with no advanced research at all. When the highly elusive Home Depot helper would approach and ask if I needed help, I would essentially tell them, in slightly different words, I suck at this stuff, and I don't know how to do stuff. I would tell them that I was no handyman, and was in over my head, and that I needed to buy a thingy for the thingy that attached to the thingy. Their eyes would light up at the prospect of providing their expertise. And not only was I shown exactly what I needed much quicker than I could have ever found it on my own, but there was virtually no pressure on me to pretend. This is my goal for my children, to not have to pretend that they've got it together. I often ask myself in the midst of a challenging parenting situation, how will my kids describe me to their counselor? While this may seem like a defeatist attitude, assuming someday they will need therapy, I see it as a reality fueled by permission to acknowledge areas of weakness and a desire to find more strength. If I can affect no other change in this world than for my own children to rise up with healthier self-esteem, with the knowledge that they are loved and lovable, not despite their uniqueness, but because of it, that they have boundaries that keep the wolves at bay and the confidence to repeatedly fail, I will have done my job. Chapter 82. The Power of Relating I've got to be honest with you. The closer I've got to the end of this story, the more anxiety I've felt. All of my familiar feelings come back in waves, sneak attacking me with thoughts that alternate between nobody cares and people expect too much of me. I wonder if my stories trail off into loose endings, if they are coherently attached to each other, if they convey the point. I wonder what I was thinking in putting myself out there, whether I've been too open and honest, whether the people who say they're looking forward to reading it will follow through and read it. I try to tell myself that I really just wrote it to prove that I could do it, and that it doesn't really matter if no one ever reads it, but of course it matters. I drift in and out of fantasies of book tours and television interviews and book signings where no one shows up, and I have to make some self-deprecating jokes and then go home. I criticize myself for making it too long, but then argue that everything is important even if it just gives context to the stuff that's super important. In the end, I doubt whether this was all worth it, and wonder if people will read it and see the person I am 
and be drawn to me or repelled by me. This is the lifelong impact of being the kid who's standing when everyone else is sitting, of being the grown-up who can't help his kids with grade 7 math despite having a master's degree, of feeling the pressure of permanent potential, of... There's, there's currently a car alarm going off in the parking lot outside my office, and it's very distracting. Maybe distracting isn't the right word. It's more annoying. I guess it's both. I wonder how far away the person must be parked that they can't notice their car alarm going off for five minutes. Now they've turned it off, which reminds me that throughout the afternoon, whenever I've looked out my window, I've seen a rough-looking guy driving a rough-looking van parked in the parking lot. He's standing with a well-dressed, nice-looking woman who appears to be talking to someone in the back seat of the van through the open sliding door. I have no idea what they're talking about, but each time I've looked out over the course of three hours, the actors in the scene are all there, though their blocking looks different. I wonder what the heck they're talking about. The guy has a slight smile on his face, but I don't know if that's because of what she's saying or because of how she looks, and he can't believe she's hanging out in his van. My stomach is gurgling, even though I just ate, so it's not because it's hungry, but digesting, I guess. My shoes are too tight. I keep having this acapella religious song playing in my head, but not the whole thing, just one line over and over again, in which the singer mispronounces the name Israel, and it really bothers me, because the rest of the performance is so good, but how could no one have mentioned somewhere along the way that he was saying it weird? We recently moved into a new house, and our cat, who I often refer to as the worst pet ever, discovered an inaccessible, to humans, little closet under the stairs, which led to Tina referring to her as Harry Potter for a few days. When the last Harry Potter book came out, I read the whole thing in one day, and then when I finished it, I immediately regretted it because the characters had come to feel like real people in my life. Finishing the book meant saying goodbye to them, and I wished I had dragged it out a bit longer. In truth, though, Harry Potter was very annoying to me, because so many things could have been easier or avoided if he'd just been willing to ask for help. One of the most annoying things in the world is when a character in a movie or book needs to leave on a quest and insists that this is something he or she has to do alone, because it almost never is. I feel like I already wrote about this, but if I did, it was probably a long time ago, and no one really remembers it, because most people probably aren't going to sit down and read the whole thing in one shot the way I did with Harry Potter. In fact, most people won't really read it at all, let alone all the way through. Since discovering my own ADHD, I've had the pleasure of helping countless people make sense of what previously felt like nonsense. I've watched as the realization dawned on them that there was a reasonable explanation for the things they had struggled with their whole lives. I've seen people before and after they have started medication and marveled with them at the difference, the clarity, the motivation, the focus that has been evoked. I have watched as ADHD parents embraced their ADHD kids and found a commonality that was previously missing. I've seen teachers put things into perspective and meet kids where they're at, working together to adapt learning environments, modalities, and expectations. I have sat with people as they have gone through the mixed emotions of adult diagnosis. I've felt their shame and their sorrow and their relief and their anger. I've ached when a person who has a chance to make a difference in someone's life by deepening their understanding has refused to go down that path and instead insisted that the other person is the one who needs to change. I've explained and taught and demonstrated and joked and even cried in every way I have thought of so far, the important principles that are crucial to arriving at a different meaning for the experiences that we accumulate, both positive and negative. For all the positive feedback that I've received about my speaking, my writing, or my counseling, the most impactful is when someone says to me, you really get it. In counseling, much research has been done on what factors influence successful outcome. These include the counselor's age, sex, theoretical orientation, years of experience, education, ethnicity, and a host of other factors. Time and time again, the results reveal that the single greatest influence on outcome is the quality of the relationship between the counselor and the client. What does this finding tell us other than that therapists ought to pay attention to it? To me, that tells us that the true healing power lies not in the words, but in relating. How can there be relationship without relating? There can't be. It has been my intention all along, 
through this collection of disasters and triumphs and painful lessons and missed opportunities that some of you will have found yourself or someone you care about in these pages. I hope you will have seen your own thoughts expressed, your own fears articulated, your own pain shared. I hope that if you have found value in these words, it is the value that comes from knowing that you are not alone, that others can be there for you, and that it is worth it to share your own story, to connect, and to build a community that is so desperately needed.